Well, Laura and I have had uh, the joy of having some friends in from out of town this weekend, and uh, our family has reached the size that we can no longer share a car ride together when we're trying to get places with guests from out of town. So we have to take two vehicles everywhere we go. And when people who are not familiar with Utah, and we want to go to a bunch of different places, hike in the mountains, and just some of the sites we like to see in the county, I've been giving instructions, just very basic, hey, this is where we're heading, Uh, it's going to take about this long to get there, Uh, this is the destination, Uh, try to follow in caravan, but if you get lost, you can type in your phone, you have an idea of where we're going. That's worked out pretty well on this trip, but I've learned I have to do that. Because I've had times in the past where we've had people from out of town, I've said, just follow me, and then we get lost in the mountains together. Somehow a a vehicle splits us up, and something happens uh, where we get separated, and usually when you get up into the mountains, you don't have service, and you can't reconnect. It becomes a big mess trying to find people. I've additionally had times where people have been out of town, and I've tried to give instructions, okay, this is where we're going to go, this is how we're going to get there. And I could see as I've given instructions, just a few times there have been visiting church teams from out of town. I say, we're going to the mountains, we're going to go here, and then here it's going to be a windy road, and then a dirt road on the right, right past the big boulder, don't miss it. And they go, uh-huh, yeah, 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 yeah. And I know they're not, I know they're not internalizing it. And sure enough, two and a half hours later, we find each other, and it ends up working okay. The directions given in a situation like that are only as good as the one who receives them. It's only as good as the one who hears the, 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 the information, interprets it rightly, got it. Let's do this thing. The Jews in the Old Testament, they were given a written record. A by God, heads up on what to expect in their national journey, particularly regarding the coming of their Messiah. Centuries before Jesus would come, the heads up given to these Jewish people would let them know what to expect. This is what it's going to look like. This is what the Messiah is going to be. This is where he's going to show up. These are the kind of things he's going to say. But even though Jesus appeared to people who had been told what to expect about his coming, they missed it. Largely because they were looking for the wrong person. They had wrong views in mind. When Jesus was born on this earth, he was born amongst the Hebrew people, the Israelites, the Jews. And they largely had in mind someone who would give them what they wanted. The religious leaders expected that the Messiah would be an approval of how religiously they had kept the law. The common people expected that the Messiah would be a political revolutionary. And by the days that Jesus did in fact come, they thought that that meant that he would overthrow the Romans and assert Israel's kingship over their land once again. The social outcasts expected that even if a Messiah were to come, he would certainly not want anything to do with them. Some people even thought that the Messiah would be an important person, a king, but merely a man. That he'd be lower than the angels. That he'd be inferior to other celestial creatures, these angels, lesser in authority, lesser in importance. And all of these were wrong views. This is one of the biggest factors, probably the biggest factor, and why it is that people in Jesus' first coming, that we celebrate Christmas, he comes as a baby, grows up amongst the people in the early first century. Why it is that they couldn't see this is the Messiah who been said to have come. 
We're in the book of Hebrews right now. We've been studying this together as a church. We've been in the first chapter now for a handful of weeks, just kind of walking through a few verses at a time. This was a letter written to Hebrew people, the Jewish people, the Israelites of the Old Testament and into the New Testament day. People who were familiar with the Old Testament writings pointing to what the Messiah would be. In the first chapter of this letter, the author has set out to make one major claim. I've said this at almost every sermon in the last four or five sermons. He's set out to make one major claim with several supporting points. And by my count, I think that's four points. You you might see them numbered slightly differently. I think that there's four main points being made to support the major claim. The main claim is that Jesus is greater than the angels. That's the point being made in chapter 1. He supports the points by saying Jesus is called Son in a way the angels are never called Son. The second point he made was that Jesus receives worship. The angels offer worship to him. The third point is that Jesus is the creator, unchangeable, and that angels are creatures that change. Today we're going to cover what I've seen as the final, the fourth point in his argument. If you have your Bibles with you, you can go to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 13 and 14. 13 and 14. If you don't have your Bibles with you, if you wanted to follow along, I'll put both of these, these verses up on the screen in a few moments. But I'm just going to read these verses out loud which will conclude chapter 1, and then I'm going to go back through those verses again slowly. We'll look at a few words at a time and try to, try to gain all we can from it. So let's read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. I'll read that out loud. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray. Father, with these two verses... We seek to see how this author is landing the plane on his first major claim made in this book of Hebrews. God, we pray that you would help us, as is uh, always our prayer. These would just be words. This would be maybe even meaningless to us unless you helped us understand the significance of these things. And so, Lord, as you have throughout the ages, help us to see this, see it clearly, and for that to not just be knowledge gained, but greater love for you because of what we read here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 13, going back again, says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This is, again, I think the fourth supporting point for his major claim. That's why it starts. And to which of the angels... Has God ever said this? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Real quickly, just so we're all on the same page here, it's probably not too hard to see this, but but the idea of seated at the right hand or sitting at the right hand of one in authority would be as though the person were in a high position of power. That if God himself were to have one person seated there, who would it be? It would be the son. How many seats are there at the right hand? One. Only one can sit there. We see this idea of only one can sit there uh, made clear to us in the mother's request back in Matthew chapter 20. This is when uh, the mommy of uh, the apostles, James and John, goes to Jesus and asks for a favor. And she's like, just, just a little thing. Can my two boys in your kingdom sit one at your right hand and the other at your left? Jesus goes on to explain that she's thinking wrongly. 
She's like, if you want to be great in the kingdom, you have to be a servant. He explains to her, but she, she made it clear that it's not, let both my boys sit at your right hand. No, there's a seat at the right, a seat at the left. It's the way they would have thought about authority. So when God is saying to the Messiah, we'll read this in a moment, this verse being cited here is of the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The sole position offered to the Messiah is that of authority, seated at the right hand of God. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This idea of footstool for feet, that's, that's the showing, the display of authority over enemies. There are ancient reliefs, you know, stone carvings on, on flat pieces of, of, of rock that show images of Assyrian and Egyptian kings with their feet literally on the heads or the necks of their conquered enemies. The picture, is, of course, is that of humiliation or subjugation for the conquered foe and the absolute authority of the one conquering them. But the author of Hebrews does not just make up this idea out of thin air. He's not just saying, come on, don't you know this? He actually roots his argument in the Old Testament, which is what he's been doing throughout this whole first chapter, showing how the Old Testament scriptures that the Hebrews would have been familiar with say these things about the Messiah. He cites Psalm 110 to make his point. Psalm 110. The 110th Psalm is the most cited Old Testament Psalm in the New Testament. Either word for word or references made to what was described in Psalm 110. It is either quoted directly or referenced more than two dozen times in the New Testament. Ten times in Hebrews alone, depending on how you you would count It's quoted twice by Jesus before the Pharisees in Matthew 22 and Matthew 26. And Peter quoted this exact Psalm 110 in the very first Christian sermon ever given in Acts chapter 2 in the day of Pentecost. So because of its import and how often it's drawn upon as the New Testament authors are saying, look, this this is Jesus, this is the Messiah, I want to go there with you real quick. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can go to, to Psalm 110. It's only seven verses long. I'm just going to read it out loud. If you want to grab one of the Bibles from underneath the, the chair in front of you, it's page 272, Psalm 110. I'm just going to read those seven verses out loud so we can see the context of what, what he's drawing on here. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This psalm points toward a future day under the reign of the Messiah, a promised ruler who will be a descendant of King David. And verse 3 in this Psalm 110 says that on that day, your people will offer themselves freely on that day of your power. And that God will execute judgment on the nations, on those of 
his enemies. With poetic language that is typical of the Psalms, David, who wrote this psalm to be sung as a song, tells of the day of God's power and the day of his wrath. And the New Testament, like I said before, picks up on this very same psalm and uses this language by pointing to a day still future to the New Testament authors. So lest there be any misunderstanding, the New Testament authors go, yeah, those promises still remain for a future day. I just want to show you a couple of those places. First, right here in the book of Hebrews, just 10 chapters later, in Hebrews 10, verses 12 through 13. The author says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, that's him going to the cross to die, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So based upon this verse right here, what can we say that Jesus is doing right now? What is Jesus doing right now? Well, for one thing, According to this verse, he right now is waiting until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. From the point of his death, resurrection, and then ascension, that is, he goes up to heaven to seat at the right hand of the Father in heaven, he's waiting from then, from that, that day, way back then in the first century, he's waiting from then until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Now, there is a disagreement among Christians on what exactly that period of history will look like. When I say that period, I mean this period between his ascension into heaven and in the future when his enemies will finally and ultimately be made a footstool for his feet. Some say that Christ's enemies will slowly but surely be made a footstool for his feet throughout this period of time right now, this age, and that Christ will return to a mostly conquered world to deal with the final remaining few enemies. That, that, that's one major view. Others say that this current period of history will not appear like victory for Christ at all, but that in the end, he will return to a mostly conquered world to defeat all of his enemies in one fell swoop. Those are two rather dominant views today in, in Christendom and the way that we view what does this period look like? Does the, in other words, does the waiting from that time mean the enemies being made a footstool began then and continues until the end? Or does it mean that he's waiting until the day at which he will make all the enemies a footstool? That's kind of the question Christians have been wrestling with over the last 2,000 years. But where Christians find unity on this particular matter is that in the end, Jesus wins. And that victory is certain. It is inescapable. It is inevitable. And this is why Christians oftentimes, when we talk about these periods, we say it with a little bit of a smirk and a smile because we're in full agreement on what happens at the end. The question is, does he win the game from the first quarter through the fourth of the game? Or does it look like he's losing until the end and finally vanquishes enemies? That, that's, that's the thing that Christians wonder about together. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 draws upon, yet again, Psalm 110. And the way that it uses that verse gives, gives a little bit more, some kind of clarity I think you might find helpful. So 1 Corinthians 15, verses 22 through 26. I'll, go, I'll do this one a little slowly. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So he's, 
He's starting, the author here, this is Paul, is starting by saying, as in Adam all die. All of us are sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, the first humans, the sinners that started this whole mess here. And since we are in Adam in that, all of us die. Every one of us will certainly face death. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. For anyone who it can be said to be in Christ, that person will be made alive. Even though we will die, we will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So in other words, Jesus was the first fruits. The first one who would be resurrected from the dead to a resurrected body. The very first person in history who was resurrected to a new resurrected body was Jesus. He's the first one. And like him, then at his coming, when he comes again, those who belong to Christ will then be resurrected to new life. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The end is certain. Jesus wins. It will not be a nail-biter wondering if it will work out the way the Bible says. Jesus has absolute, complete authority reigning today until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Now, before we move on from Psalm 110, there might be a question rattling around in your mind if, as, you, as you read Psalm 110 with me. And then if you did that little flip back to Hebrews 1, wait a second, you might have noticed something seemingly missing from the Hebrew author citation of it in the book of Hebrews. Interestingly, the part of this psalm that most clearly speaks to Jesus being divine is the part that the author doesn't reference in Hebrews. So, so quickly, let me make sense of that again. In Hebrews, what's the point of chapter 1? We said this 10 times in the last 10 weeks we've been, we've been here together. The point of Hebrews 1 largely is to make the claim that Jesus is greater than angels. But there is a part of Psalm 110, namely the very same verse that he's quoting here, that is one of the clearest places in the Old Testament that we see that Jesus is divine, that he will be greater than David. And yet, the author does not draw on that one here. I want you to just put the psalm up again. Look at it one more time with me. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, and at the quotation marks is where Hebrews one, we'll pick this up. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So you see, you see in the question I'm, I'm offering up, some of you might have had it intuitively, some of you just trying to follow me here. He did not say, the Lord says to my Lord. He jumped right into the sit at my right hand. This is really interesting because this author skips right over this part of the verse and does so for a reason. Jesus quotes this exact psalm, particularly the Lord says to my Lord in Matthew 22 with the Pharisees. You might remember the story, but Jesus is around these Pharisees and he challenges them with this question. He says of the Messiah, whose son will the Christ, the Messiah be? And they all go, David's. And Jesus quotes this psalm to them and he goes, then why in this psalm 
Does David say, the Lord, see how it's all caps, Yahweh, God, the Lord, God, says to my Lord, my master. If this Lord is supposed to be the son of David, why does he call him Lord? Why does he call him master, king, one in authority? David would certainly be in higher rank than his descendant. And actually says that the, these crazy smart Pharisees, they, they couldn't answer. And so it says that they, they did not dare to ask him any more questions because they realized that they didn't know how to answer these things. So if the author of Hebrews means to show us that the Old Testament teaches that the Messiah will be greater than the angels. Why skip over this part of the verse? Because the, the author has already made the point in the previous arguments, namely in the, the third point, the one he just gave. And right now he's going on to make yet another point. He's not restating the same one. He's making a new point. That the Messiah will be given supreme authority, the kind that is never given to angels. This promise, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This promise is not given to angels. Instead, what is true of the angels? It goes on in the next verse in Hebrews. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Now, now, quick language stuff, just because I think this might be helpful. I'm going to just, just a few of these words I want to look at and consider what they meant in Greek, what they mean to us now, because I think it might give us a little clearer picture. Just consider this. Ministering spirits. They are spirits. Angels are spirits. They often appear in human form throughout the Bible, but not always. Oftentimes in visions of the prophets, they're not human-like at all. They have multiple faces and wings and all kinds of things like that. They're not human They're spirits. This is why angels are invisible to our eyes. The Bible tells of many different stories where angels are present, but the people don't know it until they are made known to the people. Something miraculous happens to make it that they can see the angels because they're always there, and then they're being made evident. Angels are spirits. What kind of spirits? They are ministering spirits. They are special religious servants. In fact, the root form of that word for ministering is often translated in the New Testament as worship. So it it could have been translated. Are they not all worshiping spirits? That that could have been a way to articulate the same basic idea. I want you to think about the way we think of that word service for a second to get a good category shift. Oftentimes, our nation's military veterans describe their military careers as time in the service. Likewise, a person who cleans hotel rooms might be said to be in the service industry. But these two kinds of service are admittedly very different. The Greek language provides a helpful word here to distinguish between service generally and service in a particular, specifically religious context. And that's this word being used. Angels minister in that their work is directly related to their relationship to God. It's not merely just service. There's other words for the word service, which are actually used next. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve? The word serve there is diakonion. Sounds maybe familiar to some of you because it's the word from which we get the word deacon. 
Next week, by God's grace, we hope to appoint Christian to the office of deacon, servant. That means servant of the church, a recognized servant, one in which the church says this one has done a job well that needs to be accomplished for the sake of what is good for the church body. We appoint those as deacons. Christian, if by God's grace, is appointed to that role next week, he will have a heavenly example for that kind of service in the angels. That the angels are deacons of God. The angels are higher than us in created order. I want you to think about this. It goes, it goes creator, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Next down, angels, celestial beings. Old Testament has lots of different terms to refer to these, these, these little s sons of God, these celestial creatures who are not of the earth but are of the heavens. Under there we have humanity, people, the pinnacle of God's creation on earth. And under us, we have animal kind. This is the way that the whole Bible has talked about us. So that means that the angels are higher in created order than us. And yet, they worshipfully obey God by serving us. Consider what you might know about angels in the Bible. Just go back in your mind. What, what, what stories might come to mind? Why did the angel Gabriel appear to Mary and later Joseph to foretell the conception of Jesus? Why did a host of angels appear to the shepherds on the night he was born? Why did angels appear at the tomb of Jesus on the third day? This is just New Testament examples. The answer is not because it just seemed like a good idea to them at the time. Not because an angel committee thought it was what is best, but because they were obeying the command of God. They're not autonomous beings wandering the heavenlies, doing whatever they seem fit to do. They are obeying God in service. And in each of these cases that I just cited, and in many others in the Bible, these acts of obedience were for our service. They were to benefit believers. That's why it says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? It's Christians, it's believers, it's all who will end up in heaven at the end of all history. We talked about inheritance a little earlier in this chapter because Jesus is said to be the heir of all things. And that any inheritance that we get, we get as derivative inheritance. We get inheritance because we're in Christ. It's his that we get because we are in him. We covered that inheritance is a possession received by one's successor, typically by birth. You have to be born into a family in order to receive inheritance. And if you're not naturally born into the family, you must be adopted into that family to receive the inheritance. One of those two things is what happens. That's what the Bible tells us. We must be born again. And it further describes that being born into the family of God language as adoption. We're not biologically part of God's family. We are born again into that spiritually by adoption so that we receive the inheritance. It is something that is certainly yours. It's an inheritance. It's yours. It's got your name on it. But it is not yet in your possession. None of us right now retain the fullness of salvation. 
It's something that is ours but will be possessed by us in the end. Something that will become fully, completely, finally ours. That's why the Bible talks both ways. Sometimes it talks about salvation being yours and talks about it being something that will be yours. Why? Because it's certainly going to be and yet you're not there yet. Both of those things are true. Matthew 25, we see Jesus use the same kind of inheritance language all over the New Testament, but here's one example. Matthew 25, verse 34. Jesus is talking about the sheep and the goats. He's giving an image, a picture of what it would look like at the end of the final seat of judgment where God's going to judge those right before his throne. And as they do so, there will be those who will get into heaven and those who will not. And this is how he says it to to those on his right. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There's another place we see that inheritance language. If you are a believer, you will inherit the kingdom of God. My kids ask questions about heaven all the time. They always are asking questions, hard ones that I can't answer. Ask all the times what kind of animals it'll be there and how old will we be when we're there and will we remember all the things? Will we, will we still sing these songs when we get there? Uh, all these amazing, awesome questions. It was just the other day ago, a couple days ago, um, I kept saying to her, I'm not, I don't know, I don't know. To lots of these things, she goes, the Bible doesn't say a lot about heaven, does it? <laughs> I was, actually, I think the Bible says a lot about heaven. But it's the kind of thing that we crave so much, we, we want more. No matter how much you get, you want, you want to hear more. There's actually a lot in there. It will be the inheritance of the saints. We get it. Hebrews chapter 1 concludes with the fourth supporting argument, making the major claim, Jesus is better than the angels. If you're wondering, why is that such a big deal that he's better than angels? I, I I didn't think he was lesser than angels. Listen to last week's sermon where we walked through why I think that's even helpful for us right now. Even if you didn't have that error in mind when you walked in. But God, in his great wisdom, thought it appropriate, necessary, helpful for us to have a warning to not think of Jesus as lesser than the angels. So here's the points again to revisit them as we conclude this chapter. Jesus is greater than the angels because even the Old Testament scriptures testified that he is called son in a way that the angels are never called son. He receives worship from the angels while the angels offer worship to him. Jesus is the unchangeable creator. Well, they are changing, ever-changing creatures. And that Jesus is the king with unlimited authority, while angels are servants of that king. One thing we draw from this chapter that we've revisited over and over as we've been back through here is that what you believe about Jesus matters. I want you to imagine for a moment, first century, Jesus comes on the scene. People are saying, the Messiah is here. The the Christ, the the son of David is here. You're hearing this chatter all over the place. You're hearing about people running into town and telling something about miracles that they saw this man perform. I was there, I saw, I ate the food that he multiplied. I, I have a cousin whose best friend was healed from leprosy. They give all these things and these counts you're hearing, just from every angle you're hearing about this in, in Israel in this time, and you're wondering, you're, you're running through the grid of your mind. Okay, what, is, what, is, what does the Bible say again? What is my Old Testament? That's what they had then. What, is, what does that say about the Messiah? They had it right there. 
And yet even those who would receive and had the Old Testament scripture entrusted into their care would hear it taught, rabbis memorizing these things, sing them with and over the people. They missed them. How much more ought you and I, who have not only the Old Testament, but also the New, that comes in with the clarity like this to make it even clearer who Jesus is, how much more ought we not miss what God has told us about his Son? Review for yourself for a moment. How many different views are there today on who Jesus is Time would fail us to go through the different potential views and subcategories of a way that people might view Jesus. Some just say that he doesn't exist. He he never existed. It's entirely a fabrication. Like John Bunyan or something like that. Paul Bunyan, sorry. (laughs) That's like Luke's favorite book, John Bunyan. Paul Bunyan with the big blue ox. Just a myth, just a myth. Like Tinkerbell. Sorry, kids. Just a myth. He didn't exist. Later, people thought it was a good idea to insert some historical figure that got them killed. Some people say that about Jesus. It's a wrong view. Other people say, well, he existed. He was there. We know that he was there. But he was just just a teacher. He just taught good moral truisms. Take them or leave them. Some say that he was a good spiritual leader. It wasn't just morality. He was teaching spiritual things, what God wanted us to know. But... He might have just been wrong about some things. Just a dude. Maybe he had some twisted views on some stuff. Something that that we shouldn't take his words or his teaching too seriously. Some would say that his teaching was fine-tuned for a particular time and culture and not necessarily for our day. There's only one view of Jesus that matters. The truth. Who was he? Guys, this will determine where you spend an eternity. This is why this author, in the introduction to his whole discourse, that he wants this Jewish audience, these Hebrew people to know, and even as non-Jews, Gentile types, not not Hebrews, no biological uh, connection to Israel that I know of in my blood at all, and yet this is helpful and good and serving to us. He starts this by taking the time to make it clear who Jesus is. What you believe about Jesus matters. And you can believe truth about him or error. Truth to eternal life or error to eternal condemnation. You must know and believe who he really is. You know, one of the most marvelous things about the Bible is just how amazingly clear these authors show us who Jesus is. I mean, if you think there's a kind of veiled nature to the Old Testament, the poetic kind of imagery, talking about the Messiah, we could probably agree that some of it has the kind of sing-songy poetry that still left questions for the people in the New Testament. Certainly, I think that's partly why this author is drawing on these passages. We go, oh man, that was Jesus right there. But you can't read through the New Testament and take it seriously and think that Jesus is lower than the angels or not able to do miracles, or not the Son of God, or didn't raise from the dead, or didn't commission a church to continue his work until his return, or that he doesn't have certainly, inevitably, perfectly, irrefutably planned the end of the universe. The author devotes this first solid chapter of this letter to making this case because knowing who Jesus is really, really matters. 
This morning, each morning, I read a little devotional that I've got uh, written by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was a 19th century British preacher, famous British preacher. He says, really, has an amazing way with words. And I, I read his devotional each morning. And the devotional for today quoted John, the, the, John's gospel, where Jesus tells the people that he will send the Holy Spirit who will make his glory known. And our dear brother, Charles Spurgeon, who is now with the Lord, wrote about that passage that the beautiful thing about Jesus is we just get to tell who he was. It's not uncommon for when we try to introduce one person to another, we drum up the good qualities and just try to forget the bad. We don't have to do that with Jesus. All we do is look at who he really was. Just see and know who Jesus is. This is why Christians have been about Jesus for the last 2,000 years. If you know and love Jesus, you're going to be in heaven. If you don't know and love Jesus, you will not be. It's really as simple as that. John 3.18 is one of those places that we see simplicity and the clarity. Whoever be- this is Jesus speaking. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We stand under condemnation if we don't believe in the name of the only Son of God. You see that? It's not just believe in a historical figure. It's not just think some kind of true things about this guy you have a certain type of admiration for. It's believe in the name of the only Son of God. The Bible tells us that Jesus is more than a mere creature. He's eternal. He created everything that exists. He even made the angels. He's to be worshipped and praised. He alone is uniquely called the only begotten Son of God. All authority has been given to him. He is ruling and reigning today at the right hand of his Father in heaven. And he will certainly and decisively bring history to a close exactly when he means to. If Jesus was not greater than the angels, if Jesus was not truly God, then his death would not have been worth enough to pay the infinite debt we owe to him because of our sins. And understanding this is critical for the gospel. The gospel declares to us clearly that God created us, put a code and a law in our hearts to know what is right and what is wrong. We have sinned against him. And because of that sin, we have slapped in the face the infinite creator of the universe. And he's told us what our punishment will be. Death, separation from him forever. Hell, eternal conscious torment. Jesus warns us of this over and over and over and over again, the condemnation. You're you're going to remain in condemnation for eternity if you don't believe. But God in his infinite goodness sent Jesus to die for the sins of the world. If Jesus was merely an angel, his death on a cross would not have been valuable enough to pay the infinite debt. It might have paid a portion. It might have paid enough for one other person. But that creature would have had to have been A, perfect, and B, died on behalf of another. But because Jesus is truly God, his worth is infinite. This really matters that Jesus died for us, that we are justified by his death, that the wrath of God, the punishment due to us, not just me, not just you, but all believers who will ever live, that one life of a God is worth more than all the lives of the creatures. And the way that we have that is by belief in Jesus. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already.
we see these summary statements of the gospel. That the kind of things that these authors, as they introduce books sometimes, like Hebrews chapter 1, want to get straight for us. You, you might think that there's just a tiny deviation into the error that would make somebody think that Jesus is lower than an angel. But this author refuses to let us get past that before we get into Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 3 and 4 and beyond. Jesus is who he said that he is. He's the greatest, most worthy of all that exists. This is why earlier when we sing crazy, crazy songs, you can have the world take the world. I want Jesus. Give me Jesus. Wait, wait, wait. Really? Yeah. Because we trade what is lesser value for what is infinite in value. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I know that as we consider the gospel again, it is, it is helpful to be reminded by our sin, who Jesus is, and how we can be redeemed out of our sin and what we deserve because of it. Lord, I pray that, that any who will hear my voice, who will, who will revisit this sermon here in our, our seating in this place today, driving a car, hearing this some point on the radio or a podcast forwarded from one friend to another, Father, that we would not waste the moments of our day thinking, ah, tomorrow maybe I'll think about this. Tomorrow I'll soak this in. Lord, let every heart desire what is greatest. Lord, for the sake of your glory and our great joy. Father, let us see the reality of our sins. Let us see what we deserve. Lord, let us see Jesus as he truly is. Not merely a good being, but the creator of all. Perfect, infinite, righteous, just, and loving. Lord, I pray that we would see him in that way. And this church would grow in our understanding and our knowledge of Jesus. Not just that we'd have one more notch in our theological belt of understanding, but that we would learn to love him more truly as he is. Help us as we seek to do that. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen.